1: this origins chapter is sponsored by bleacher report bleacher report is all about moments that matter in sports and culture they know their fans and for them it's about the creativity around the moments that matter whether it's posterizing dunks on the nba outrageous displays of fandom in college football or the best moments from ronaldo's summer vacation bleacher report brings you what you want to see straight to your feed with the fastest updates possible Bleacher Report is also a place where sports fans can share what they care about most, like how a certain former New England quarterback feels about a certain current New England quarterback, or a video of kids figuring out how to watch March Madness in class. Bleacher Report knows what you want to see before you do.
0: I wore the number 17, Coach Saban's first year. His second year, I wore the number 12. My name was 17 and 12, respectively, until I finally, I think, broke through and he realized, all right, he can take the harassment that we've been giving him for the last two years. You're now going to be going by Greg or McElroy.
1: Percentage-wise, what percentage do you think of your job for Coach Saban is psychological versus physiological?
2: About 99 to
1: 100.
2: 99%? I mean, honestly, for these guys to buy-in is everything to me because once they buy-in, we don't even know what their potential is.
1: So for the first game of the season, do you have as a goal for yourself and with Coach Saban, the idea that everyone on that team is going to have bought in by then?
2: 100%.
1: So if somebody hasn't bought in yet, it's possible even if they're a gifted athlete, they may not start?
2: Oh, I would assume that, yes. It's so hard not to buy in and be the starter to me. In my mind, you would just struggle with the day-to-day. Your mental capacity, would, you would struggle. We're trying to teach that it's not really about starting. It's not really about winning. It's about dominating every phase that you can possibly dominate. You're gonna make mistakes, 100%. You're gonna make mistakes don't care what position you're in, there's only one person ever walked this planet that was mistake-free. <laughs> and none of these guys are him.
1: <laughs> Nicholas Lou Saban Jr. was born on October 31st, 1951 in Fairmont, a small West Virginia coal mining town. His father, Big Nick, founded a Pee Wee football league that encouraged kids from the area to get into sports even providing buses for those who didn't have transportation to participate. Saban attended Kent State University in Ohio, where he played defensive back and received his bachelor's degree in 1973. While studying for his master's degree there in sports administration and waiting for his wife, Terry, to graduate, Sabin got his first sideline position when he was hired as a graduate assistant for then coach Don James. The Sabans became somewhat nomadic in the late 70s and early 80s, as Saban served as an assistant coach at Syracuse West Virginia, Ohio State, Navy, and Michigan State. When his alma mater passed on him as head coach in 1987, Saban left college football to become an assistant coach for the NFL's Houston Oilers. Two years later, in 1989, the University of Toledo gave Saban his first head coaching job. After one mere year and much success, then Cleveland Browns head coach Bill Belichick offered Saban the position of defensive coordinator. I'm curious about the nexus with psychology because we think so much about physical activity and whatever, but that mind-body connection, which is part of the DNA of, right. of the process. Do you think that that was something that you started to think about from an early age?
3: I think that I never really started to realize that part and separate these things until I was in college, even though they may have been actually happening around me. There was no realization on my part that this was happening. But when I got in college and I got kind of interested in doing some sports psychology type things and had some very interesting classes in that area, did I realize that, you know, things like anxiety and achievement motivation and did really affect performance? And then you start figuring it out, you know, in reality of how these things really, whether they affect you or others that you participate and compete with.
1: For somebody who's just landed from Mars, how would you describe the process?
3: Well, it's not as complicated, at least in theory. You know, basically, I think if you're going to be successful, you have to have goals, you have to have vision, you have to have something that you want to accomplish, and then you have to have a defined set of things that you need to do to accomplish that goal. I don't care if you want to climb Mount Everest, I don't care if you want to take a tenth of a second off your 400-meter time, I don't care if you want to lose 10 pounds, you have a goal, you have a vision for what you want to accomplish, and then you define exactly what you have to do to accomplish that. That's what I call the process. The most difficult thing, though, is you have to have the discipline to execute it every day, and this is where people probably struggle the most.
1: Here's Lane Kiffin.
3: The process is the number one reason why Alabama wins,
4: because it is Nick Saban, which is the number one reason they win, and the process is him. That is how he does every day and every year, and it is exactly the same every single day of every single year. And that is the process, and that is why they win. And why it's so good, he's got years of experience.
1: How long did it take you to fully appreciate or understand what the process entailed?
4: I think a full year, because I think the first year, you're just scrambling to figure out how to do what he wants, you know, and how to get into the process. And you don't understand it. You're just trying to execute it. And in the second year, now you are going through it for the second time, and so now you start to see, okay, this is why he did this. So I think to fully understand it, you're three, but to get most of it, you're two.
5: I actually was recruited to Alabama before Nick Saban got there. I wasn't that impressed with Alabama. I went, and my main goal as a recruit was I really wanted to win. Former Alabama All-American, Barrett Jones. I wanted to be part of something really special. I wanted to win national championships, and so... I'll never forget, you know, the whole time I had an inclination, you know, my dad actually played basketball at Alabama, so I was always somewhat interested in Alabama, and I'd heard the rumors that he might go to Alabama, so, you know, of course, I'm watching on TV with the Dolphins as all that's going on, and then soon after he signs with the University of Alabama, he actually gave me a call, and uh, gave me a call, and we we talked a little bit and and decided he was going to do an in-home visit, right, so you get to have your in-home visits uh, with recruits. And he came to my house actually, and we had lasagna. I'll never forget. He walked in and gave my mom a kiss on the cheek in a very Italian way, and he kind of laid out for me for the very first time the process. Right, something you hear a lot, him talk about a lot, is this process. And he he painted this picture for me of what Alabama was going to become. And you know, I think people maybe hearing the story think, well, that's easy. Alabama's always been good, but they forget that you know before Coach Saban got there, he, even his first year, I think they were coming off of a. A seven and six season so it was a little bit of a leap of faith for me in a way to kind of believe that it was gonna be what he said it was gonna be Saban would work under Belichick at the Cleveland Browns for four seasons before
1: taking the head coaching job at Michigan State where he worked with psychology professor Dr. Lionel Rosen beginning in 1997 Rosen attended practices and instructed the athletes on step-by-step thinking processes a system designed to increase focus and motivation by minimizing the size of the task and eliminating distractions. Those elements manifested themselves brilliantly, aligning with Saban's process in November of 1998 when the Spartans stunned the college football world with an upset whammy that shocked then number one ranked Ohio State on their own field. 1999 was a strong year for Saban and the Spartans until stalled contract negotiations, wonderlust, and a great opportunity elsewhere Saban making the extraordinary move during this season to leave Michigan State for LSU. Four years later, Saban led LSU to the BCS Championship over Oklahoma. If you think that kind of success fueled stability and contentment, think again, my friends. In 2004, Saban would be on the road again, this time returning to the NFL to become the head coach of the Miami Dolphins. Saban, however, forgot the bromide, when the Lord wants to punish you, he answers your prayers. Miami turned out to be more pothole than paradise for the Sabins. Here's Nick Sabin's wife, Terry.
6: Getting back here was the trick. I think that being in the NFL, once again, going back to the Miami Dolphins, which at the time was a great organization, but realizing after being there that definitely this time you can take it to the bank, you're cut out for college. It's where your love is. It's where your heart is. So... I think there was more of a readiness on our part that made the situation different. Not so much that Alabama was different, but I think there was a readiness in Nick as a coach, as a leader, and as our family, as a couple, to say, this is it. You know, we're lucky to, we maybe stumped our toe and we realized after going back and forth several times we're starting to get it college is where we need to be college is our love it's where nick shines it's being around the young players it's help developing them into young men it's recruiting you don't recruit in the nfl the families and the wives are not important in the nfl you are not as involved You don't have the alumni or the alumni events or the fundraising. And so in that regard, it is a lot different. Alabama is a special place, but I think it was the calling that it was the right time for Nick Saban and for University of Alabama to come together. There was a readiness there, and it it has proven to be a great marriage.
3: When things go wrong or go poorly, everybody is in the mood to respond and do it a better way. When things go well and people have success, it's not normal to continue to do the things you need to do to be the best. So it's normal to have success, get rewarded for that success, which in most cases people expect, you know, I get to go to Aruba for a week because i Set the sales standard or whatever, or I get time off because I met my quota, or we played a big game and won, so therefore, why do we have to practice on Monday? I mean, that's normal mindset. I made an A on the first test. I can chill out for a couple weeks and make a C on the next test and have a B average. That's normal. All right, so when you come off of a successful season, you don't need this complacency. You don't need this inability to focus on the things that helped you become successful. You know, complacency creates a blatant disregard for doing what's right. So all of a sudden, you're not doing the right things. So therefore, you're creating good habits or bad habits. So by not doing the correct things, you enhance the chances of creating bad habits, which in the long run affects performance. And all of a sudden, you're not playing to your full potential anymore. So It's a different mindset completely to try to be successful as opposed to maintaining success because success is not a continuum. It's momentary. And if you're going to continue to be successful, you have to continue to do the things, even in a better way, that made you successful. And that's not normal for a lot of people. Or easy. Or easy to do.
5: A lot of coaches... Are very promise oriented. You know, they they go and they say, "I promise you're going to play." You know, we're going to give you whatever number you want. We're going to give you a special spot in the dorm. There's a lot of of that kind of thing going on. When he is recruiting, he basically almost lays it out to you as a challenge. You know, I, I think when you look at the type of guys who go to Alabama, there's a ton of those type A guys who love to be challenged. Right? Like like it's really not a great place for players who want to be coddled. You know, and some players. Actually, they've never admit this, but they really want to be coddled. That's not really his thing. He says, hey, you're going to have an opportunity to come here, compete against the best, and you'll have an opportunity to play. Uh, and there's a spot and there's opportunities, but you're going to have to go out there and prove it on the field against the best players from around the country. And for whatever reason, when he said that, uh, that just piqued my interest because you know there was no guarantees, there were no promises. His pitch was come and have an opportunity and let's see how good you really are it was almost that mentality of him challenging the players of saying let's see if you're everything that you think you are
3: I think you could talk to a lot of people they know what they want to do they even know what they have to do to do it but when it comes to doing it every day very difficult to make the choices and decisions on a daily basis that you need to make and have the self-discipline you know you know you're supposed to do it but you don't want to do it can you make yourself do it Then there's something you know you're not supposed to do, but you want to do it. Can you keep yourself from it? I mean, these are decisions that we make all the time, and it comes down to feeling or choice. I'm going to do what I feel like doing. I mean, people say all the time, I don't feel like practicing today. I don't feel like going to class. I don't feel like studying. Or you choose to do the things you need to do to accomplish the goals that you have. That's something that we all have to cross that hurdle to be able to be successful and we also all have some circumstance that we can make a justification for not doing what's right or not doing the things that we need to do to stay on the task or the path or the process to accomplish the goals that we have.
5: When he's talking and he just starts laying it out for you, he is an absolutely incredible recruiter. He gets you in the room one-on-one. He just lays it out for you. He has such a a meticulous plan and a process for how he plans to get there. It's not just an abstract thought. He really has a method for the way he's going to do it. And he paints this picture, and you leave, and you are so jacked up, and you just want to be a part of it. Every coach says something along the lines of, you know, we're going to do great things, and we're going to be amazing, we're going to build something special. But for whatever reason, when Nick Saban tells you that, you believe it, and it's different. And it's really hard to put your finger on exactly why. When he laid out that method for me, it just blew my mind and I I really it's hard to really put it into words but I just I I wanted to leap across the table right then and sign on the paper and that was the moment I knew I was coming to Alabama I was going to play for this guy because we were going to win a bunch of football games as long as he was at the helm
1: throughout all the moves and flirtations from various teams there had always been at least one consistent force for Nick Saban the continued dedication to the process with constant refinements and a never-ending exploration into the all-important world of motivation.
6: I think an important part of talking about strict discipline is to define discipline in Nick's terms. I've heard Nick say many times, discipline is not to punish. Discipline is meant to change behavior. If you don't change behavior, then it's useless. So I think that as far as is discipline working in terms of of how it's applied in the process, in football, in life, in the workplace, in your personal life, whether it's dieting or being a better person, it only works and is successful if it changes behavior. It changes your behavior to be a better person or do things the right way. You know, our NYX Kids Foundation, I was just yesterday at the groundbreaking our West Alabama Juvenile Detention Center, and our foundation is helping to build an addition onto the existing building, which will house a welding school for the young people who live there right now, and a classroom where they can get their GED. So, you know, if you discipline these young people by closing the door behind them and making them stay in this detention center, how are you changing their behavior? If you don't give them some tools to change their behavior, when they leave there, and they go back to the same environment that they came from, the same family, the same friends, they have no choices, nothing has changed in their life, they end up right back. But if we can change their behavior by giving them some tools, like a skill or to get their high school degree, I think they have a chance to make better decisions and to find some happiness. Yes, Nick is a disciplinarian, but only in regards to how he defines that word, what do we need to do to get you to do the right things? How can we change your behavior?
1: Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done ziprecruiter.com slash origins. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never have to miss a great match. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, Origins listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Origins. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash O-R-I-G-I-N-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash Origins. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. True story. When I first tried razor, I gave up after 45 seconds, but the packaging was so cool So that Saturday morning, I tried it again. This time, I actually read the instructions and decided to be, God forbid, a tad patient. The OneBlade experience turned out to be time well spent. The design is awesome. They spent over a million bucks and had over a thousand prototypes to build the world's best razor. OneBlade didn't set out to create a good razor or even a great razor. Their goal was to create the perfect tool to deliver the perfect shave. And after using it, there's no doubt that they succeeded. Because the one thing that One Blade teaches you is it's not just about the razor. It's about the total shaving experience. This situation is simple. You get a barbershop shave at home. My face has never felt better. And by the way, you get a lifetime guarantee with this thing. And if you don't like it, there's a no-hassle, 60-day trial. No harm, no foul. But I doubt you'll want to let go of it. It's just that good. If you are ready to elevate your shaving experience, try OneBlade today. Listeners should go to onebladeshave.com and enter the discount code ORIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off their entire purchase. That's OneBladeShave.com and enter the discount code ORIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off your entire purchase. OneBlade, come for the shave, stay for the deep breath. Former Yankee manager, Joe Girardi. Were you a admirer of the process through coach Saban himself did you bring it
7: before he came to speak well I'd read about it before and he was in Miami the same time I was in Miami coaching the Dolphins I was coaching the Marlins and that's kind of where I started to become fascinated with him and then when he left for Alabama and I saw how quickly he turned it around I was curious and I wanted to research it I know for me personally I tried to get better every day but I didn't really call it a process you know I just thought it was what life was supposed to be but I think he phrases it well, and he talks about, you know, they practice plays until they can't get it wrong. Not until you get it right, but until you can't get it wrong, and it becomes so ingrained in your head what you're supposed to do, it becomes instinctual. And I think sports are really instinctuals. If you have to think about what you're doing in the batter's box, if you have to think about when you start your hands, when you start your leg kick, you're in trouble. It has to become an instinct.
0: If I had a dollar for every time he said the word, quote, process, in a post-practice, hey, circle-up-around coach or a post-workout circle-up-around coach, I'd be retired right now, Jim.
1: Former Alabama quarterback Greg McElroy.
0: He was constantly preaching it. And and at the time, I I don't want to say it fell on deaf ears. It was just so repetitive with how he used it and phrased it that you didn't think about it. And I think that's what he wanted. He didn't want you to think about the, quote, process. And the way he defines the process is... It doesn't matter what the score is. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter what your record is. It's only about what is directly in front of you, the rep that's coming up, the down that's coming up. How can you position yourself to win that down? Because if you win that down and the next down... And the next down, you might lose a down here and there, but if you win a vast majority of the downs throughout the football game, you're going to be successful, regardless of what the score is. So his idea of explaining the process, he would always say things along the lines of, we're not playing against the scoreboard. We're not playing against the opposition. We are playing against ourselves and the standard that we've set for ourselves. So if you give 99% effort as compared to 100, that wasn't going to be good enough in his eyes.
7: Too many times I think young people focus on the results. If you continue to do everything right, in the long run, it's gonna pay off. And he believes so much in the process, which I believe in as well, because the process takes care of the results. The results don't take care of the process.
1: Saban met Scotty Cochran while at LSU, and they hit it off for sure. Cochran has been on Saban's staff for every national championship victory. As tough as Cochran can be, he also serves as a yin to Saban's Yang, offering a more supportive role for players. Several Alabama players consider this an important balance of motivation and support that push them further. Is part of your job making sure that the process, quote-unquote, comes alive on the field? I hope so. (laughs) I take a lot of pride in that, so I hope, yes,
2: for sure. I believe that, for sure.
1: Tell me about a difficult time that you had with a player on the field something that either they talked back, refused to cooperate, or some other thing.
2: It happens a lot more often than you would think, but it's basically when you're trying to get across to them why something is important and they think they're going to figure out on their own. So I can give you specific examples where guys had great success doing it the wrong way, and it's like, "Come on, man, if you just would have done it the right way, A B or C would have happened." And I can tell you many times where they obviously fell on their face and wish they would have listened. And most of the time, we're going to have a good team based on if they can learn those lessons early. Because it's just for these guys, it's the same thing as anything else. Sometimes they have to learn the hard way. They're 18 to 22 years old. Sometimes they have to learn through a loss. Sometimes they have to learn through getting beat out of a position, In order for them to see it.
1: But for some of these guys, though, they're thinking, wait a second, the very fact that I'm here, that I'm playing in Alabama means I know what I'm doing. I don't think anything's broke.
2: Right. Exactly right. And that that I made it, too. There's also, uh, I made it out of the streets. (laughs) Yeah, and that is definitely an issue, especially if a guy comes in and just dominates the program. Well, then now I have to find different ways, and Coach Saban and I have to find different ways to motivate or to push them because the goal is to find the wall every day and see how they respond so that when the big things come, they're ready. We're trying to push the limit every single day and find out, okay, breaking points don't exist. You can go further. You don't even know that you can.
1: If you break them down too much, do you risk – them losing confidence
2: uh, there's always ways to build that back up they're going to get wins they just have to also learn how to handle the wins whether it be becoming the starter whether it be playing through an injury or whether it be hitting the goal that they set confidence sometimes you got to let them know hey, this is football and you're killing it I'm just coaching you because I see a little bit more you're doing everything right. I'm not complaining about anything. What me yelling is because the radio's on loud. <laughs> but I'm not mad at you. This is me coaching you, and there's no reason for you to think for one second you're not able to dominate in this league or in this game. So you're going to make mistakes and you're going to screw up. But I think also buying in doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Buying in means you understand why and you understand what you're supposed to do, and you understand the commitment level, those staples that coach lives on, the commitment.
6: I've heard Nick say, and I think he quotes me, so I'm allowed to quote him, but he has used the phrase, winning is not a sometime thing. And it transcends football. It's everything you do in your life. Again, it's the workplace, it's the home, it's the family, it's every decision you make being based on a solid value system. And you go back to talk about his parents and my parents and our relatives and our little communities in West Virginia. You know, a lot of those communities were built on first and second generation families who came from Italy and Poland and Germany to get jobs, to get work in the coal mines. They struggled because they knew it was the only way. They were lucky to have a job. They knew they had to work hard to make ends meet. It was a grind, but it was a good life, and I think it taught great work ethic and discipline that can be applied you know, to anything you do, whether it's your, your marriage, your workplace, or the football field.
1: Did he ever get in your crosshairs just specifically about you?
0: There were a few. He's definitely uses some psychological aspects of trying to bring the best out in you. And he would rip me to shreds. I mean, as the backup quarterback, you are constantly in the crosshairs. And what I've kind of come to realize is when things are going really well and you're playing really well, he's going to be much quicker to criticize and say, hey, that's not good enough. You know, hey, you might have been 9 of 12, but that third and three you missed in the flat to the right, you can't miss that. And that's kind of how he would be. I could make, what he would actually say is, I could make that throw. And he would probably try to show it and practice the next week as well. But when things were going poorly, he was always there to not necessarily coddle you, but really try to build you up. And he was really good about understanding the temperature of the team, when they needed to be criticized and when they needed to, I think, be
7: brought down a little bit. He's a figure that a lot of them look up to and that they know that he is going to make them a better person and he's going to make them the better football player. He's going to get the most out of them, and he challenges them. And I think you have to challenge players. I do because, you know, you go through practice in Alabama in, in the month of August, it's going to be hot. You're going to be tired. You're physically going to get beat up, and he's going to continue to push them. But they trust him, that he knows what he's doing, and that's so important
1: how do you know when to push yourself into fourth or fifth gear with these players and and really raise your voice or really get in their face because you can't do it every second of every practice so what does your gut tell you about when to ramp it up
2: well my goal is you know we're dealing with millennials and when i say that everybody gets oh man you're coaching millennials or oh you have millennials in the workplace you know like To me, I think you have to know them first. If you want to get their best, you have to know what they want. And if I know what their goals are, you know, I can see when, okay, are they giving it to me or are they faking it or are they really pushing it so I need to keep my eye on them? I think knowing them is half the battle.
1: But what would you do or have you ever had the equivalent of an Allen Iverson, somebody who... When the game is on, he is just lighting it up. He is just so special. And, you know, he just practices. He wants to pace himself. He he doesn't want to get injured. He doesn't want to overtrain. He likes to save himself for the game. Have you ever had a player like that? Or what would you do if you did have a player like
2: that? Uh, So, in my mind, you have to retrain the way they think when they think that way. I think there are certain times of the year, yes, when a guy is just dying out there and he's giving you everything he has but it's just not that much there's areas you need to take care of there's areas where you need to say okay well instead of doing heavy back squats today we're gonna go get in the cold tub and we're gonna do some different movements to make you feel a little bit better it'll hurt at the time but it'll make you feel better in two days and then there's other guys that you'd have to do the complete opposite
1: then how are you keeping track of that and how are you making it a group exercise
2: So I think that's where competition comes into play. You know, the best is when you have guys that are competing, not because they're trying to take that person's position, but they're competing just to go to another level. And you'll see it. You'll see it in every drill you do. You'll have guys that just line up and go forever, go all day, and they're competing against two or three guys in the group. You know, and then the next workout, one of those two or three guys is in the back, you know? Are they just cooked? Did they start off out front with them and they just, their body's shutting down, telling them no? And then you challenge them. Okay, where are you today? You know, while in the middle of the drill, you're in the back today, you're just getting whooped all day today. You're enjoying it, losing today. And if they have another gear, they're gonna mentally, okay, you're right, I'm better than this. They push through. And then if they're still not able to, that's when you got to find out, okay, what's going on, you know, whether it be a family situation, whether it be academics. There's no telling what it is, but I don't think that that part is as difficult. I think it's getting to know them to see it. I think what happens is a lot of times you don't see it. And I can tell you who can do it better than anybody is Coach Saban. When I say I had a feeling about a guy He was already calling him into his office that day. (laughs) It was unbelievable. We're at practice, and, you know, I was like, man, I'm just kind of worried about a guy, thinking in the back of my head. And so I went up to Coach. He's waiting by his office. I said, what are you doing here? And he goes, yeah, Coach called me up. He wanted to talk real quick. And I was like, yep, he sees the same thing I saw, you know. And I'm like, how does Coach see that? So wrapped up in the day-to-day practice that he's going to see a player. And it was an offensive player, and – He's like, something isn't right. And I was like, (laughs) you're dead on. Something isn't right. And so he got to the bottom of it.
5: If I were a head coach, that is the first thing I would do is go out and hire a great strength coach probably. And that's, I don't know if you keep up with the contract news, but that's why there's always a battle for Coach Cochran. Scott Cochran, he is like the... You know, there's that my big fat Greek wedding example. If Coach Saban is the head, Coach Cochran is the neck, right? He really is of the program. He is the guy. You know, when Coach Saban maybe goes a little too hard at you and you get your feelings hurt, you go in and talk to Coach Cochran, and obviously he he pushes you, but he also encourages you and tells you, you know, you're able to do it. He kind of they make a great one-two punch, and he's a huge, huge part of the program. Probably doesn't get enough credit. He is, you know, people know him for he's the guy who screams and he's the guy who he actually holds his four fingers up the entire fourth quarter of the game. Like he's a little crazy, but he's also a great guy who cares for the player. So a strength coach is so important to setting the tone of your organization. Because if if the head coach is the only guy who believes what he's saying, it's not going to work.
1: One of the most important factors contributing to Bleacher Report's extraordinary success has been longevity among a group of key personnel, most of whom remain at the company to this day. Rory Brown is now Bleacher Report's president.
8: When I first went into Bleacher Report, I think it was 12 or 13 full-time employees. It was lean and mean, and the content was user-generated content. So, yeah, we had this massive number of people who had signed up to write about different teams and topics. And what I would essentially do is create questions and say, Hey, you've signed up to write about the Boston Celtics. Do you have any interest in writing about topic X, topic Y, topic C? and then I would get some responses from that, and then I would engage those folks and you know, make sure people weren't writing about the exact same topic, and you know, to figure out who was talented and who wanted to write about what. Those were topics that really resonated, and that's stuff that not enough people were writing about at the time, and really Bleach Report turned into this really interesting case study where it was just good old-fashioned supply and demand, where we'd figure out where the supply wasn't meeting the demand.
1: I talked to a couple of former players, and they had told me about the fact that you had wanted toward the end of the season to slow down a little bit, just to make sure that everybody still had a lot of gas in the tank for the playoffs. You didn't want anybody to get burned out. You didn't want to risk more injuries, and Saban wouldn't let you do that. A, is that true? And B, was that frustrating for you? Because obviously that's what your instinct told you.
4: Yeah, out out of respect to the situation, I, um, I don't want to get into details on that. But I will say this, and I'll give him credit, that This last postseason that just came up after, you know, losing to Auburn, you know, not making the SEC championship, and this is documented by people who have said this, that he did change. So to give him credit, I wish it would have been years before, but he did finally back off on those playoff practices and won the national championship because of it, with extremely close game in the championship, that that would have been the difference. You know, and so he cut back on practice reps, you know, that month leading up to the first game and then the week for the second game for the championship, and it paid off. And I have spoke to players, a coach that could totally tell a difference, and the players felt a lot better. So, instead of focusing on the negative about why he didn't do it when I was there, I'm going to focus on the positive that, hey, at least he eventually did it, so maybe bringing it up way back then, eventually years later when I wasn't there helped. The number one reason why I believe that you coach is for the players. You know, as coach, you're going to coach forever and have all these rings sitting in a drawer somewhere out I know mean, over half an hour, okay? But the player only has these few years. And so I believe that's our job. And so a lot of times, you know, that was my driving force that, okay, I'm going to speak my mind. I'm going to say this, whether it's about feeling that the players are too tired, you know, it's the end of the year and we're still taking a million reps. So things that I was saying a lot of times would come from the players. And so I'm just trying to speak what's best for them. And then in the end, obviously, it's his decision. Whatever he says, you know, we'll go out and execute. And remember, again, different environment. I came from an environment where that's how I was kind of raised in the Pete Carroll of, hey, this is 100% about the players and making sure these players are getting what they want and need. And that at the end of the day, that on Saturday, you know, they feel great mentally and physically so that they can play really fast.
5: You have to have... Everyone in the organization on the same page about exactly what you believe. And here's the trick too: is it can't just be even the coaches; it's got to be the players. That's why another reason why we were so good at Alabama is because the players took ownership of the standard. And it was crazy out there. Normally, a coach wouldn't even have to get on a player because of another player would normally come alongside and enforce a rule and a standard to the player. It is so much more powerful when other players are actually enforcing the rules versus just being coached. You know, guys are are programmed. They're used to having a coach yelling at them. That's just kind of part of football. But when a guy you respect, a guy in your position group comes up to you and says, hey, man, that's not the way we do things around here, it carries incredible weight, incredible weight among players. And that's really, we had a culture of that at Alabama of having the courage, you know, to call guys out when it was necessary and, and look them in the eye and say, hey, you're not really doing what it takes to be great.
0: I can think vividly throughout the course of the last 10 years when I've actually paid attention to it. Now that I'm removed from it, I follow it a little more closely from a third eye perspective. He's going to have three or four rants a year. One rant is going to be week 11 when they're playing a small FCS program or a group of five school the week before they play Auburn. He's going to go on a rant that week, and it's like clockwork because. He wants to make sure that the team is not overlooking and disrespecting the opponent and feeling a little bit too good about themselves. But if you look back in 2014, when they had played against Arkansas, they won the game 14-13. It was freezing. It was cold weather. Arkansas probably should have won the game, but had a few miscues in special teams. And Coach Saban got to the press conference and said, Is winning not good enough for you guys? To the media. He's saying, look, these guys won, they did what it took to win, and yet here we are criticizing them, asking them why they didn't win by more. So he really does, I think, have a great understanding of how to adjust his message and adjust his approach depending on what the team needs and what you need as an individual player. And to think that he has to manage 125 different personalities. Each personality is just completely different, too.
1: To that end, Greg, is Saban a guy who asks about your family all the time? Is he talking about, like, oh, how are you and your girlfriend doing? Or or is it always just about the field and plays and what's going on with the team?
0: Well, his relationship with each individual player is a little different. For instance, my relationship with Coach Saban was extremely professional. And it was about football and school and... How are the young quarterbacks in the room doing? And how can we maximize what we're doing offensively? It was exclusively about football and occasionally a little bit about how we can improve things when it comes to the classroom. But for other guys, and I saw this firsthand, there's guys on the team that that didn't have as stable a situation growing up as I had. I was fortunate to come from a two-parent household where both my parents were remarkably supportive and... Did a great job in in trying to instill values in me. And there were several guys that I played with that didn't have that. And he approached them a little differently. And always wanted to make sure that he was there for them and supported them. And made sure that they felt loved and appreciated. And were told good job. And were told outstanding work. And were also criticized when necessary. So it's amazing to see how often he would change his personality type and approach Based on what the player would need or what the player's background was like. He's a remarkably compassionate person. And I don't think he's painted in that way, but he should be. The amount of money and time that he puts into the neighborhood and that he puts into each individual player is is pretty amazing. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. And if you're on the team, you can really witness that and appreciate that because you as a teammate and as a friend, you're trying to build the people up too that might be in need of some confidence and he does it better than anybody and he does it flawlessly. I mean, without any issues whatsoever. And to do that with 125 different guys that require different things is, it's pretty amazing.
1: Saban's success on the field has vaulted him into the stratosphere of not just great coaches with some considering him the best college football coach ever, but of prize mentor, supporting and inspiring players off the field as well as on it. Here's Tom Rinaldi.
9: He has said a number of things to me in interviews, and he said things to his team that I've either been in a setting where I've been able to hear them, whatever it may be, that I have taken back on the plane with me and challenged myself to use in my life as a parent, as a husband, as a son, as a man. And I can say that about but a handful of the people I've encountered in sport. And it's amazing that he will say things that are certainly not directed at me, but I will take the heart of what those things are, and I carry a wisdom from them back and try to apply it into my own life. His definition of discipline, he demonstrates with two hands. He holds up his left hand, and he says, on this hand is something you really want to do but you know you shouldn't do can you keep yourself from doing it on the other hand and he holds out the hand is something that you really don't want to do but you know you need to do can you make yourself do it that's discipline he probably first said that to me a decade ago i have never forgotten that I have thought of that, I have failed to live up to that, but I've thought of it countless times, with our son, with our daughter, with myself, all the time. And that's but one example of many of things that he said that I have found myself trying to apply in my own life.
1: Coming up in episode three, we'll talk brutal workouts and the Saban legacy. For Origins, I'm Jim Miller. This has been a Cadence 13 production.